please take your Bible and open them to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be there just briefly, just for a minute or two this morning. And then we'll actually be jumping around all over the New Testament. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that's unusual for us. Usually we camp out on one specific text or passage and we walk through it verse by verse. But we just finished up the book of Colossians last week after a year of being in Colossians. And before we start our next book, which will be the book of Philippians, uh, I wanted to take some time, 8 to 10 or maybe even 12 weeks, and look at a very important subject in the Bible. And that subject is the church. In theological terms, just for fun information, we call this the study of ecclesiology. But for those of us who can't spell that word, we want to just refer to it as the study of the church. The Bible has a lot to say about the church. And that is a very important subject that we occupy our time with, that we give our attention to. And so to, today and the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be walking through what the Bible has to say about our, us gathering together, us congregating as the people of God. This morning we're going to give just a quick overview. And so I'll be touching on things, but not necessarily diving very deeply into things. Uh, these are the subjects we'll be looking at over the next several weeks. But this morning, I just want to expose us to them. And I want us to begin with a series of questions to maybe stimulate our minds in the correct direction. The first question being this, what is the church? If you had to define that to somebody, if somebody approached you, on the street and ask you, what is the church? What biblical answer might you offer them, might you give? Another question, how does a church begin? Or how does the church come about? And maybe some of you are thinking about this next question. Why is it even important to know about the church? Shouldn't we just come together and do what we do? In fact, do what we want to do and do what we think is best and then and build ourselves up and encourage ourselves and then go on? Or is there something more to it? Are we actually not at liberty to do whatever we want? Are there rules and definitions and principles and descriptions of how we are to operate? Why is it even important to study the church? Well, this morning we're going to start where we should start, and that is with the existence of the church. The very basic, obvious, fundamental truth that the church exists. And if it exists, it exists by some sort of means and some sort of intention. What are those means and what, what is that intention? The church exists, and therefore we have to explore its origins and in studying the origins of the church we will be helped to understand God's purpose for the church in the world you and I we might take it for granted that the church exists because we come to it every week we might even take our claim of its legitimacy in the society for granted because we're a part of the church but in a society and in a culture that we're living in right now that's ever increasingly desiring to expel the church from its midst, it's very important for us to know why it even exists in the first place. 
And does it carry any sort of authority with it? Or perseverance? What is God's desire? In fact, by the mere existence of the church, we conclude that God desires it to exist. Not just desires it, but wills it and purposes it to exist. Unfortunately, most people will attend church for a large part of their lives and never ask such questions or care to contemplate such realities. But if we're going to be healthy as a church, if we're going to be obedient as a church, if we're going to be obedient as Christians, and if we're going to bring glory to God as His people, then we need to know what the church is, what she does, how she comes about, and why she is important. So we start with the church's existence. And it exists because God wills that the church exists. That's why the church is important. Because it's important to God. God has always been about the the business of gathering His people together. Even in uh, the garden, we find the importance of relationship. We've talked about this even the last several weeks as we've finished up with Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4. God has created us. It's built into our DNA where we need and desire even a certain degree of human interaction, social interaction. Man and woman cannot thrive and flourish without the aid of one another. The only thing that wasn't good in God's garden before the fall was Adam's loneliness. And so God formed out of His rib Eve, a companion. That happens before the fall, not after the fall. After the fall, that need is only heightened and intensified. And for Christians now, that need is clarified. We need each other. And God has graciously gifted us with the church, with the fellowship of the saints. That has been God's plan from the beginning. And that is God's ultimate plan culminating in heaven, isn't it? I told you this morning, you guys in your singing made me long for heaven. That's because in heaven, all of God's people will finally be gathered together around His throne praising Him. God not only has been working to bring about the gathering of His people from all corners of the earth and all ages, all times, all nationalities, He intends also to end human history, end time with that gathering. So, God's church exists and it exists by his desire which means it is not a human invention it doesn't exist by human will it exists by God's design it exists in two continual states first as a universal church and this is where we look in Matthew chapter 16 if you look in Matthew 16 verses 13 through 20 Jesus is speaking with his disciples he begins by asking them what the world thinks of him. In verse 13, who do people say that I am? The disciples respond in verse 14, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. In verse 15, Jesus makes it incredibly personal, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And in verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the first time we find the word church mentioned in the Scriptures in the New Testament, and it's mentioned by our Lord, and He's promising its perseverance. And He refers to it in a universal sort of fashion. This is my church as a whole. Flip over now to Ephesians. New Testament letter. Toward the latter half of your New Testament. Ephesians is loaded with references to the church. Look into chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. We find it again referenced in a universal fashion. Verse 22, And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Another example of a universal reference of the church. Not in a singular context. Christ isn't just the head of one church. He's the head of the entire church. I'll flip a few pages to chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Paul's actually teaching here about the relationship between Christian husbands and Christian wives and the in the Christian household, but embedded in this teaching is a teaching about Christ and the church. So in verse 25, Paul writes and says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, a universal reference. And such a truth might be applied to each specific local church. It might be applied to our local church. It should be applied to our local church. But it doesn't only apply itself to our local church or any local church. It applies itself to every church that is congregated by the Spirit of Christ. Existing by the purpose and for the purpose of Christ. All that to say that in a very real, honest, spiritual way, God has tied the hearts of all of His children together in a universal church, in a universal fashion. So that every believer who's been born again, past, present, and yes, even into the future, and every brother and sister who's in the world right now belongs to the universal church of Christ. With Christ as their head, with the relationship of you and I, though we may, may have never met them, 
We have brothers and sisters right now across the world asleep in their beds who are as much a part of the bride of Christ as you and I. And that's an important thing to understand. Christ has a massive family that you and I get to belong to. But the universal church is only one, I would even say, smaller aspect of the church. It's how the church will ultimately exist in all of eternity. And God allows it to even exist now in a spiritual sense. But the other way that the church exists continually is in a local congregation. That local existence of the church, I believe, is born in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. If you want to go ahead and flip your Bibles over to Acts chapter 2, a very important text in discussing the church, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, really the entire chapter. Local churches are the manifestations of the universal church. And they exist in time and in space and in reality. They are the flesh and bone of the universal church's reality. The vast majority of references in the scriptures to the church are referencing the local church. Smaller congregations of brothers and sisters who meet regularly and do certain things and exist in a certain way. The local church, according to the Scripture and therefore according to God, is of immense importance and holds a place of prominence in the life of the believer. Now, Acts chapter 2, I believe, is the place where the church is born. Greg Allison, a systematic theologian, also believes that the church is born in Acts chapter 2. And he looks at these verses and he says, the two basic elements of a church's nature come together in Acts chapter 2 to give birth to the church. It's the Spirit's indwelling of people and His gathering and gifting of them for spiritual service. This is where that first takes place. The Spirit of God comes upon Believers now, and con- or contrary, different to his Old Testament ministry, he now indwells every believer in Acts chapter 2, and he begins to gift them. Look in verse 36. It's the last verse of Peter's sermon. And he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. If you look at verses 42 through 47, it's all about how they're interacting and how they're relating and how they're spending each day together. 
And verse 47 ends the same way verse 41 did. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. What are they being added to? It's being added to the number of believers who are congregating together as a local church. And from this point out, through the rest of Acts and through the rest of church history, the church spreads so that we'll find a church at Ephesus and a church at Colossae and a church at Thessalonica and a church at Jerusalem and a church in Rome. It all begins right here with this physical, existing in time and space, local church born out of the power of God and desire of God. So yes, the church exists universally, but it's expressed locally, which has major implications for you and I. In other words, let me just cut to the chase. For the Christian, belonging to a local church is not optional. Existing and living and functioning and serving and ministering in a local church is the expression of you belonging to the universal church. Indeed, it's of such importance that most of what we find referencing the church in the Scriptures is about your interaction in the local church. In fact, you and I cannot even be obedient to God if we're not existing in a local church. We can't fulfill the one another's, the relational commands in Scripture. We can't fulfill the Great Commission and a whole host of other truths if we're not actively living in a body of believers. The church stands in a place of prominence in the life of the Christian and in the life of God. And we cannot ever ignore it, write it off, dispose of it. Not only do we need it, it even needs us. All that to say, if you will belong in the universal church, then you will express that by belonging to the local church. Now let me ask you, again, what makes a local church? What constitutes a church of God in a local setting like ours this morning? Is it just merely assembling in the name of Jesus? Is it like-minded people coming together in an assembly? Is it legal documents like a constitution? Is it recognition by a denomination or another church? Well, let me give you several marks, not an exhaustive list, but several marks of how the church exists, what constitutes a local church. The first one is this. A church exists by the Holy Spirit. A church exists by the Holy Spirit. In fact, there is no church without the Holy Spirit. Not only does He save us so that we may belong to the church, He gathers believers together that they might form a church. He also grants His stamp of approval upon a congregation. Congregating them under the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we can discover this principle being taught by Paul. 1 Corinthians 12, a lengthy chapter about the church. In verse 12 and 13, he says this, 
just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. That's a reference in a universal fashion. Every Christian who belongs to the universal church enters through the baptism of the Spirit. We're all baptized by one Spirit into one body. But if that's true of the universal church, that's also true of the local church. It's the Spirit who gathers believers together, saves them, congregates them, and then grants His stamp of approval. In other words, you might get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, You might share the common salvation in Christ. But if you're not gathered by the Spirit, if the Spirit's not among you, you are not a church commissioned by Christ. Secondly, the church exists by the Spirit and it exists of believers and of believers alone and believers who are in relationship with each other. Committed, covenantal, confessional relationship with each other. If you look back into Acts chapter 2, only those who are born again, only those who repent of their sins, only those who trust in Christ are added to the number. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, only those baptized in the Spirit are added to the number. Back to that gentleman, Greg Allison, I referenced earlier. He defines a church like this. The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into His body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. Again, the main point is you and I can only be a part of the church of God if we're first saved by Christ. It's an exclusive membership. It's open to everyone, available, but exclusive. Only those who have been born again may exist as members of the church of God. Which means, just a side note, I feel compelled to go this direction. Church membership is incredibly important. If the Scriptures teach that only believers are admitted into the church of Christ, then whoever we give our stamp of membership to, we are saying, so far as we are able, that that person is a believer. Membership is, in reality, a stamp, an affirmation to a person's conversion. So to admit a person is to say, we think they bear the marks of Christ. They are a Christian. Which grants assurance to believers that this group of people testifies to the fruit of God's saving work in my life. It's also a witness to the world. We as a group of people believe so-and-so belongs to Christ and therefore belongs to us. Who we admit, 
or don't admit as a church is incredibly important. It actually does deal with a person's salvation. Church membership will not save you. But church membership serves as an affirmation or not of salvation from a worldly perspective, from a human perspective. But it's not just important. Church membership is not just important for the church to understand. It's also important for the person to understand. You need the affirmation of brothers and sisters. Not only practically on days when you're wrestling with your faith, when you're stuck in a spiritual rut, or as the Puritans say, you're going through the winter of the soul and everything seems dry and dead. Not only do you then need the affirmation of brothers and sisters that you belong to Christ, but you need the constant reminder and ushering before the gospel together. The importance of uniting yourself to a body of believers comes right down to your own salvation and your own growth in the faith. So believers are the only ones permitted to belong to a church. Those believers exist in relationship. If you look back in Acts chapter 2, once these people are added, once the Spirit convicts them, they repent, they're baptized, they're trusting in Christ, they immediately begin to fellowship or relate to each other. Look in verse 42 of Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And again, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. People don't just assemble in a church. They assemble in relationships in the church. Even before the church is founded in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says to His disciples, and by extension all those who will follow Him, He says the world will know that you are My disciples by what? The love that you have for one another. The way that you interact, the way that you relate, the way that you care, the way that you sacrifice for each other, the way that you prioritize each other, the love that you have for one another will bear witness to your belonging to the people of God. Flip over to 1 John, if you will, please. 1 John is a very small letter towards the back of the New Testament. If you go to the very last book, Revelation, then you need to go left. You'll come across Jude. 3rd, 2nd John, and then 1st John. I want you to see how important it is that brothers and sisters love each other. 1st John chapter 4, verse 7. John writes and he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, 
because God is love. Let's, let's pause right there just for a moment. Do you see the weight of what he's saying? Love in a general sense can, can be applied here or implied here. But contextually, he's specifically, particularly talking about the love between brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, if you don't have a genuine love for your brothers and sisters, you don't know God. The love among the people of God in a local church is of such importance, John immediately ties it to your salvation, to your relationship with God Himself. Love is an act of assurance that you do know God, verse 7. And the lack of love is also assurance that you don't know God. Verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Verse 12, we give the example of God when we love each other. Verse 11, if God has loved you, your heart will be stirred to love each other. Believers don't just exist in name only. They don't just come together and sing the same songs and sit in the same building. The true church means we exist in relationship together and a loving relationship at that with the kind of profound, divine, heavenly love that God has shown to us through Christ. Let me tell you, you can sit here. You can attend regularly. You can have your name on the rolls. But if you aren't striving to be in relationship with your brothers and sisters here, then you're not constituting a true church. You're not growing in the church. You're not helping the church. For all intensive purposes, you don't even belong. Belonging is so much more than just having your name on the computer. Belonging is so much more than just warming up a seat on Sunday mornings. To belong in the church is to love your brothers and sisters. In all of the complexities and in all of the difficulties, and in all of the disagreements, being in the church is being in relationship. We are a people, and we must live and exist together as people. That means we, we must be committed to each other. It also means we must exist around a singular confession. And that confession is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, Ephesians is loaded with references to the church. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Paul writes and says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And what is that? What is that manner that's worthy? 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How do we live together in a manner worthy? How do we live together in humility and gentleness and patience? How do we bear with one another in love? How do we become eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? By clinging and upholding and defending and proclaiming our singular confession. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father. The Christian faith. So, you and I, we must exist in relationship together if we're going to exist as the church. Number three, and I'd better speed it up. The church exists by the Spirit of believers and of believers in relationship. And number three, the church exists on the Word, both incarnate and written. Paul tells Timothy that the church is to uphold the truth, be a buttress of the truth. The church has a purpose and a calling to defend the truth and proclaim the truth, but the church is also built on that same truth. First on Christ in John chapter 1, we find John calling Jesus the Word made flesh. In Hebrews chapter 1, we find this contrasting picture. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, which is another way of saying even the Scriptures. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the full self-disclosure of God. And we are built on Him as our cornerstone. And we are built on the rest of the Scriptures as part of the foundation. Flip over just a page to Ephesians chapter 2. If you've been tracking with me, Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 18. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is an important point as well. We don't just exist for hobby's sake. We don't just exist for self-help or moral encouragement. We exist on the truth of God. And therefore, we must be a people immersed in the truth of God. In other words, we must value the Bible. We must uphold the Scriptures. We must cherish them. When Paul tells us that we're built on the foundation of the apostles, that's what we have when we have when we read the Bible, the works and writings of the apostles. We want the divine truth of God. 
We want to know the truth of human nature. We want to know the truth of salvation. We want to know the truth of the world. We want to know the truth of even, yes, the church. So the church exists on the Word, both incarnate in Christ and written by the apostles. Number four, the church exists for God's glory. Also in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church exists to glorify God. Not for our preferences, not for our entertainment, not for our invented ministries. It exists purely and solely for the glory of God. And that expresses itself in two ways. I won't get into this morning. I'll just reference missionally and worshipfully. Our mission, and in all that we do to accomplish our mission, we glorify God. And I maintain, and we'll highlight in a few weeks, the chief calling of any church is worship. That's where our faith finds its culmination. That's where we glorify God. Number five, the church exists with Christ as its head. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, both reference Christ being the head of the church, which means a relationship to our Lord is one of obedience. That Jesus governs us. We don't have the freedom to do whatever we want to do. Our church isn't to be built around our tradition. It's to be built under the governing lordship of Christ. Through His Word, with the help of His Spirit, He directs and instructs every aspect of what we are to do and who we are to be. Number six, the church exists by being assembled and led. Assembled and led. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we're told not to forsake gathering together. In other words, you and I really are to prioritize being with the church. So much so that we are to orient our lives around being with the church, not the other way around. Modern Christianity has fallen into a a strange practice to where you hear commonly people say, I will go to church if this works out, if that works out, so on and so forth. Church and being with the saints is oriented around their lives. Instead, our lives should be oriented around being together as the church. I plan my work around being with the church. I plan my vacations around being with the church. I've read wonderful stories where people even buy homes based upon their relationship to their church. We are a people assembled. And assembling together is a high priority. But we don't just assemble. We must be assembled and led. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul tells us that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful screams. You know what that passage is saying? It's saying, let me work backwards. If you want to avoid false teaching, if you want to grow into maturity and no longer be children tossed to and to and fro, if you want to grow into the full measure of the stature of, of Christ, if you want to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God, if you want to have the unity of the faith, if you want to obey God's call upon your life by doing ministry, if you want to build up the body of Christ, then you must have leaders over you. Verse 11. Scriptures actually talk about church leaders being a gift. God has actually designed it to where churches don't function without leaders. He has recognized that we all need to be led. So a church must not only be assembled, a church must also be led by people who are designated by God to lead. The Scriptures clearly define a very special relationship between a church and her shepherds. One of nourishment and care, of authority and direction. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about churches leaders giving an account and caring for your souls watching over your souls, you realize that God's design is for your soul to be watched over by godly pastors. If a church is to thrive or flourish or grow, she must be assembled and she must be led. Otherwise, she's not functioning as a local church. I want to wrap up real quickly by talking about the relationship that God has to His church. The church exists. That's where we started. And it exists in two continual states as a universal church made up of all of our brothers and sisters all over the world. That's a joy. That's a big family of God that we belong to. But it also, and even more so primarily for our current circumstances, exists in local settings. And in those local settings... It exists by the work of the Spirit. It exists of believers in relationships. It exists for the glory of God with Christ as its head. It exists on the Word of God. And it exists in an assembled and led sort of fashion. But how does God relate to His church in a corporate way? Well, the Scriptures tell us He relates in a very special and very binding way to His people. And I'll just rattle off a few. He's called the father of his church. Which means we're his children. But there really is a familiar uh, atmosphere here. We are belonging to the same family. He's called the savior of his church. The Lord of his church. The redeemer, deliverer, protector, provider of his church. His church is called His body, His bride, His people, His ambassadors, the ones who represent Him on earth. His church is called His ministers. 
His servants. The church is said to be indwelt by God. The temple of God. All of that to say God cares about us. God cares about the church. He cares about the universal church. He cares about each local expression of the universal church. And He's promised a special and binding relationship. There are many good things we can give ourselves to in this life. But one of the best things is the church of God. There are many things we could study in this life that are good to study and good to know. And one of the best of them is the church of God. Existing together by God's decree and God's design is to our good. Find it strange that people are so unwilling. God has given us a gracious gift, a massive present in being able to be together. And we ought to cherish it. If you are born again, if you are a Christian, membership, belonging to a local church, is your calling. You will glorify God together in a fellowship. If you don't belong to a church, maybe you even do belong to this church. You need to examine and make sure first that you are right with God through Christ. And then ask Him to change your heart so that you would love the people of God just as He does. I hope through these next few weeks we will not just develop a better understanding of the church as a concept, but we will grow in our relationship for each other, our love for each other, our care for each other. Father, this word of yours, it's so informative, but it's not just for information, it's life-changing. It calls us to obedience. It calls us to a certain way of living. It calls us to truth. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to arrive to those destinations. Help us to be obedient where we should. Show us where we're lacking. Help us to care about Your bride. To guard Your body. To love our brothers and sisters. Show us the importance of existing together in relationship, in community. Show us the blessing that we have with one another. Even when times may be hard. We are Your people, God. Gathered by Your design and Your pleasure. I pray we would exist for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.